Um, Jonathan texted me when I was in Costa Rica. I just got home from um, Costa Rica late Thursday or Wednesday. I can't remember. Um, But just a few days ago. And um, he said, hey, do you want to preach again? I was like, absolutely. He's like, well, um, can you preach on Galatians 6? And I was like, well, which part? And he's like, well, the whole thing. So um, when I study Galatians 6... There's about five different sermons in here, so I hope you can get comfortable and get ready. Um, actually, and the, the challenge is, is I normally don't like to preach more than 25 minutes. Can I get an amen? Amen, yeah. Um, so I am going to try to pull some spiritual kung fu here and preach the entire chapter of Galatians in the next 25 to 30 minutes. But before I do that, um, let me pray and... Um, Let's just ask God to speak to us today. Father in heaven, I just thank you so much for this opportunity. Father, I thank you so much for this study and how much it has spoken to me personally and how you've used it in your church. Father, as we open your word today, I just pray that you would um, open our hearts and our minds to receive it. Father, I pray that we would see that it's all about you your death, your sacrifice, your love, that you are perfect. It's about you, what you've done and not what we do. Father, I pray that we would flee from religion and just embrace the relationship. And we just thank you so much for being here this morning. We give you all the glory and all the credit for everything you're about to do. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen. So this series was called, this is the last chapter and the last message in this series, um, Religion Ruins Everything, and I love that. Um, because it's true, and I believe that. As we get into the final chapter of Galatians, we need to give a little backstory. For five chapters, Paul has really belabored and um, stressed one point, that it's not about do, it's about done. It's not about what we do, it's about what Christ has done. That it's not about a set of rules, that it's not about a set of... of, um, hoops we have to jump through theologically or spiritually or socially to impress God, to win favor with him, but it's about embracing and having faith in what Christ has accomplished, and that's what um, we're looking at. Um, So let's start with chapter 6. It says, brothers, if any of you is caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, so fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each of you test his own work, and then reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor." for each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with one another who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will be also reaped. For the one who sows in his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows in the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then we have an opportunity. Let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are in the household of faith. 
Set with the, see with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. It is those that would want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in the order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do themselves, do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have the circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast in anything except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation, and for all who walk in the rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the of the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you, your spirit, brothers. Amen. So there's a lot to unpack there. A lot. And it seems like Paul, for five chapters, has made one point, And now, at, in chapter 6, he's going to be like, oh, and by the way, there's all this other stuff. I'm going to give you some practical advice, practical counsel, almost like Proverbs, on how we live in community with one another. Now that we have been saved by grace through Christ, and we're all part of the one family, which that's interesting because brothers is the first and the last words in this chapter, except for amen. But brothers, and he's stressing that, like now that we're in a family together, now that we all believe this, now that we're again in common fellowship, because remember, that's what happened was Paul and the Judaizers, or on Peter and the Judaizers and others had broken fellowship with some of the new Christians that weren't getting circumcised and weren't following the dietary restrictions in the Jewish law. They were like, no, Jesus is good, but Jesus plus this stuff. You don't have it quite right. And Paul's like, no, Jesus plus nothing is perfect. Jesus alone. It has to be that way. So as he's unpacking this and all this, he gives us some really practical things. And for five chapters... He has belabored it. And when I was doing some prep, um, Martin Luther has a commentary on Galatians 6, and he says this concerning Galatians and the idea that it's through Christ alone. He says, this is the truth of the gospel. It is most necessary, therefore, that we should know this well, teach it to others, and beat it into their heads continually. I love that. Luther, I think I would have got along with him. He loved beer, and he says things like that. He's like... (laughs) You have to beat the gospel into their heads all the time. Because he realized how hard-headed and hard-hearted we can be. That we have to be taught continually that Jesus, 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 Jesus. Grace, grace, grace. Faith, faith, faith. That's what it's about. Not about performance. Not about religiosity. Not about doing this and doing that. But rather, faith and trust in Christ alone. So, what does it look like to live in spirit-filled community? Well, let's just start with verse 1. It says, Brothers, if any one of you is caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should restore them in a spirit of gentleness. So, brothers, do you realize that we are a family? And that's one of the things I love about TCC, is it really is small enough that we feel like family. No one can follow Jesus alone. And that sounds like a bold statement, and I'll say it again. No one can follow Jesus alone. That was never the plan. When he went around and he gathered up 
his disciples, they all walked together. And they fought, and there was bickering and all kinds of stuff. But nobody said, hey, I'll follow you, Jesus, but I can't put up with these other people. Just let me follow you, and it'll be me and you, and we'll be happy. That's not the way it works. When you get reborn into faith, when you place your trust in Jesus, when you start following him, you are now a member of this family. And this family, like my own personal family, is pretty jacked up. I mean, you guys, I love you, but it's a weird, weird family. Some of you, I grew up in a family. I have two brothers and two sisters and my father and mother and a bunch of crazy uncles. And I mean, there's just so much. We could be, it could have been a reality show. My family was so jacked up. But you don't get to choose the family you're born into. But you have to love them and you have to learn to live with them. And that's the thing. We don't get to choose the family of God. Sometimes we like to do that. And that's where you get into a lot of, well, I don't like that group. I'm going to go over to this group. Well, you know what? That group's pretty messed up. I'm going to go over to this group. And you have these people that bounce from church to church to church to church because they're looking for the perfect Christian family. And guess what? There's not one. The only thing perfect about Christianity is Christ. But we all live together, and we're all walking this journey together. So when Paul says brothers, he's not just being like sounding churchy. He actually means that. He's like brothers. And then it says, if anyone is caught in transgression. The word caught there is interesting, and I, I read a lot of stuff in preparation for it, and it can mean two things. One, it could be like caught, like the woman that was caught in adultery and brought to Jesus. She was caught in the act. But another use of this word in Greek is caught, like ensnared or caught by surprise. And I liken it to, because the one we understand, if you're caught, like, okay, you know, there's no way to avoid this. They know that the gossip came back to you, or they know that you've been cheating on your taxes and the IRS has caught you, or whatever it is. But then there's this other caught, and I think both of them are right. The other cot is almost like, I don't know if you've ever been to the beach here in Florida, but it's almost like an undertow. Have you, has anybody here ever been caught in an undertow out at the beach? Yeah, several hands. When you look out at the beach, you see the waves, it looks awesome, and you go out and you start swimming or surfing or whatever. And what happens is under the currents, you can get pulled out in an undertow. And you're caught in it, and it's caught by surprise. If you knew you were going to be in an undertow, you would probably never go into the water. So sometimes sin, because we live in a sinful, broken world, and we're sinful, broken people, we get caught in sin, and it surprises us, and we're like, wow, I can't believe I responded that way, or I can't believe I said that, or I can't believe I just did that. I knew it was wrong, but in the moment, my sin, my flesh, the world, the circumstances has caused me to sin. Now, I don't, I'm sure you have experienced that. I know I have. But, when it, but what does he say to do? As the family, anyone caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore them. Now, let me point out the word spiritual there. It doesn't mean like those of you who are holier than thou, those of you who have jumped through all the religious hoops that have been circumcised and don't eat pork and you do everything right, those are the ones that should call out people. 
First off, you shouldn't be calling out anybody. This is somebody who's caught, trapped. Like imagine if they're, you're sitting on the beach and you look out and you see somebody in an undertow and they're being pulled out and they're going to drown. So those of you who are spiritual, meaning that you walk by the Spirit, and this is what Jonathan was talking about last week, that we can choose to walk by the flesh or walk by the Spirit. If it wasn't last week, it was the week before. I can't remember. But you can choose to walk by your flesh or walk by the Spirit. So those of you who are actually walking by the spirits and you see fruit of the Spirit in your life, which are what? Peace, patience, gentleness, long-suffering, kindness, faithfulness. I mean, I love all of those. That's If you see those fruits in your life, then you're going to be equipped and ready to go restore someone, which is the real kicker there. You know, that's what it says to do. What are we supposed to do with somebody that's caught? We're supposed to condemn them and make an example out of them and bring church discipline upon them and shame and shunning and break fellowship? No. That's not. That's what the Judaizers were doing. And Paul's like, do not break fellowship with them. Rather, restore them. And this word restore is actually beautiful because it's the word they would use when they would restore their fishing nets and make them useful again when they would get ripped or torn. Or it's the word that they would use to reset a bone and a bone would heal and be restored. So it's not this idea of making them like you. It's this idea of healing them and bringing them back into the body of Christ. And historically, the church is not very good at this. Because we love to judge, we love to condemn, and we love to point fingers and say, you shouldn't be doing that, and these are the consequences. And that's because we love to do that because it makes us feel better about ourselves, which we're going to look at in a second. Rather, God says, no, lovingly restore them so that they can be part of the family again and whole. Then it says, restore them with the spirit of gentleness, but keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Now that's interesting. The person who's in most danger of falling into sin is the person who thinks they're immune to it. Pride comes before the fall. So if you look at somebody and you're like, wow, I can't believe they did that. I'm so glad I'm not like them. I can't believe they would act that way. I can't believe they call themselves a Christian and that's your attitude going into it, you're in grave danger because you don't understand the true gospel of what's happening here. It's almost like the story that Jesus tells of the two people praying in the temple. And the, the sinner comes in and he's beating his chest and he won't even look up to heaven because he says, I'm such a sinner. I'm so wretched. God, please forgive me. Help me. And then the Pharisee walks in and he pounds his chest and cries and says, God, thank you. I'm not like him. And Jesus says, only one prayer was heard that day. And it was the humble, the contrite, the person that's saying, I need Jesus desperately. I am caught in the undertow. And I need somebody to come out and help me get out of this. So I want you to think about that. What does it mean to truly go to somebody that's caught in sin? And when we think about sin, the sins of Stealing, lying, adultery, murder. I mean, I don't think any of you have a, I hope none of you have a real problem with murder. Those are the sins we think, well, they, they should be okay. But sins can be arrogance and gossip and self-loathing 
and not understanding the proper gospel that should be alive in your life. Those are the sins that we should maybe confront somebody about and say, you know what, You're, you seem really angry all the time. I would like to just talk to you about that and maybe pray with you. Or man, you seem so impatient or you seem so consumed with what other people think. And you go and you lovingly and you gently talk to them and restore them. Then, verse 2, bear one another's burdens so that you may fulfill the law of Christ. Fulfill the law of Christ. What's the law of Christ? Jesus said you can sum it all up. Love God and love others. So you have this relationship, vertical, then you have this relationship, horizontal, going back to nobody can follow Jesus alone. So he says you really want to follow Jesus and you want to fulfill the law perfectly? Remember, that's what Paul's talking about. We can't fulfill the law perfectly, but the law of Christ is summed up in love God and love others. And if you want to do that, you have to help them bear their burdens. Now, the word burdens here just means the troubles of life. Right now, with COVID and everything happening in the economy, and just all, there's a lot of burdens right now in our church and in our country. I love TCC for that reason, because I think we do it pretty good. You guys do that pretty well with meal trains for people that are sick, with childcare with even the foster program of, of Fostering Hope, or, or I forgot the name of it, but those are tangible needs and those are burdens that you would come alongside them and say, hey, let me help you do that. It could be something as simple as lifting something heavy. When two people lift something heavy, it's all of a sudden half as heavy, unless I'm helping you move and it might be like 75, 25, <laughs> but anyway. Um, but it's, that's what carrying a burden means. And sometimes they're physical, financial, tangible burdens, and sometimes they're emotional burdens. But that's the idea is that I love you so much that I come along beside you and say, hey, let me help you. Let me carry the load. Because together we're stronger. That's what the body of Christ should look like. I think of Acts, the early church in Acts. And um, let me find my notes because I have it written down. I don't want to turn over it says this in Acts 4.32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With the great power of the apostles, they continued to testify the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in all of them that there was no needy person among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or owned houses sold them and brought the money to the sales and put the apostles at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to everyone who had need. That is beautiful. The early church understood it. They bore each other's burdens, and they did everything necessary and loved sacrificially. That's what it means to give and give, um, to have that burden, um, to carry each other's burdens. Um, let's go a little further. For if anyone thinks he's something, then he is nothing, and he deceives himself. I hate to tell you this, but if you think you're something, you're nothing. And this goes back to Paul warning against pride. If you think you've got it all together, and you think that you're not one that needs help, you're wrong. 
I love how Jesus sometimes do, do, um, says things that are just kind of crazy. And he was talking to the, this, the apostles one time, and I won't go to the verse, but he's talking to them, and he's like, he's talking about the good father. And he's like, well, if you, who are evil, would do that, how much more so is God? And he just kind of drives right past that. But he calls all of his apostles evil. But because he, he knew that our condition is evil, our state of being is not good. In 1 Corinthians, he says, think of what you were before Christ. Not many of you were of noble birth. Not many of you were smart. Not many of you were or wise. Not many of you were anything of power. And he kind of just brings us all down to the same playing level. With God, amazing things happen. Without Christ, without God, you're nothing. There's nothing redeemable about you. And I know you can sit there and say, wow, Spencer, how can you say that? I know a lot of people that aren't Christians that are good people. No, they're not. They might do things that seem good, but it's always for selfish motive or gain. But only through the love of Jesus Christ and the sacrifices found therein and trusting in him can you really start to understand what love is. And that's what brings goodness to us. That's one of the fruits of the Spirit is goodness. So let's go a little further. So don't think too highly of yourself, but let everyone test his own work, and then in reason he'll be able to boast in himself alone and not his neighbor, for each of you will have to bear his own load. Now when you read that, you might think, well, what the heck? Paul says, bear each other's burdens, and now he's saying, carry your own load. And that's exactly what Paul's saying. And it's not a contradiction. You could read that and think, well, is Paul schizophrenic? What's going on? He just said this, and now he's saying this. But if you go to the Greek, they're two very different words. And this is really cool. When I was studying it, I, somebody unpacked this for me. Burden is something that we all deal with. Those are the things that happen in life and in the world, and we need help with that. Those are the weights that we all carry. Now, this specific load, the word load there is your personal responsibility. And this is what Paul is saying is the thing that God has called you to, that's your deal. And you have to do that. For example, when I felt God was calling me to sell everything and move to Costa Rica and start 6-8 Ministries, I didn't immediately say, you know what, I don't really want to do that. I think I'm going to call Brian and tell him to go do that because that doesn't sound like something I want to do. I could have done that, but God didn't call Brian to that. He called me to that. And we look at everybody's load differently, and we like to compare it, which we're going to, Paul talks about that in a minute. And I love that. The story, do you remember the story of Peter? I think it's in John 21. Peter, after he had, do you remember the night when Jesus was going to be killed? Peter denies him three times. And he's, he's scared out of his mind. They're killing Jesus. And all he can think is, is now they're going to come after us and they're going to kill us too. So all the disciples flee. Matter of fact, Peter gets caught. And they, they say, do you know him? And Peter denies him three times. I don't know him. Remember? Well, shortly after that, Peter is waiting for Jesus. And Jesus doesn't show up in time. So, Jesus, so Peter's like, hey, I'm going to go fishing. And he doesn't mean like recreationally to have fun. He's like, this whole Jesus thing, it must have been a sham I'm going to go back to being a fisherman. 
And who shows up? Jesus. And it's so cool because they do a miraculous catch and he brings it in and he eats fish with them and he breaks bread with them and he looks at Peter and he restores him three different times. He looks at Peter and he says, Peter, this is now what I'm calling you to do. This is your load, Peter. Feed my sheep, feed my sheep, tend my sheep. And by the way, Peter, you're going to die. The one thing that you were so scared of, of dying, that you denied me, I'm restoring you and I'm giving you the load and you are going to die for me, Peter. You're going to feed my sheep, build my church, take care of my sheep, and then you're going to die for me, which he did. But Peter's reaction isn't like, oh, praise God, I'm so glad that I get called to being a martyr for Christ. What was his reaction? Do you remember? It's our reaction a lot of times. He immediately looks at Jesus and says, he points at John and says, well, what about him? What, why do I have to die? What do you mean? I have to do this? That's what you're calling me to? But what about John? And do you remember Jesus' response? Jesus says, Peter, don't worry about John. What happens to John is none of your business. That's between me and John. And kind of drops the mic and walks off. I mean, that's how it is, though. You have been called to a specific calling that I can help you with it, but I can't do it for you. I have been called to a specific calling that God has called me to that you can't do it for me. And that's what's so beautiful about it is he has given every one of us a calling. And when we all do it together, corporately, it makes the plan of God function. But you can't do what God has called me to do and I can't do that for you. So when Paul is saying that, where each one of us will have to carry his own load, that's what he's talking about. And note that he says, um, test your own work and boast. You don't boast in what you've done. You boast in what Christ has done in and through you. It would be horrible if I said, Man, I can't believe I had the faith to go to Costa Rica and I did this, 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 this and built six, eight ministries. I boasted in myself. God would not be pleased with that. And he would probably teach me a quick lesson of, no, God did all of that. I just got to follow that call. So when Paul says, hey, you got to bear your load, that's what he's talking about. And if you're sitting there thinking, well, Spencer, I don't know what God's called me to do. Well, pray about it. Find out because he has a specific calling. Maybe it's just being a godly husband right now or a godly mother or whatever your profession is. Is Maybe you're supposed to be a light in that workplace. Maybe you're supposed to be something else and you've been resisting it. But Paul is telling you, go, do that. Okay. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. What does that mean? And this is probably why Jonathan wanted me to preach today. Um, it means pay your pastor and support your missionaries. I think it means more support your mission. No, just kidding. Um, but, but really, you should. No, but that's what that means. If you are being taught the word or if you are being, um, if you're sitting under the instruction of another person, then we should pay in that person. And Paul talks about this throughout scripture. I know Jonathan is um, multi-occupational, what do they call it? Bi-occupational, I don't know, whatever. But he has another job 
bivocational. Thank you, Warner. And that's great, but most pastors aren't like that. It's very honorable what Jonathan is doing, and I love that about him. And Paul was a tent maker a little bit, but it wasn't his main deal. Do you remember when Jesus sent out the, the, the disciples, the 70? He said, go into the house and eat their food and stay with them and don't pay them. That's their blessing to God is that they would do that for you. And that goes back to the, the idea that Paul is so busy writing letters and so busy planting churches and so busy instructing everybody and so busy doing the work of God because that's the load that God has given to Paul specifically that he doesn't have time to work a full job. So it says, for those of you who are under the instruction, give and give generously. Because what does it say? Right after that, do not be deceived, God will not be mocked. For whatever one sows, he will also reap. Now, there's two ways to look at this. One, you can look that Paul is talking specifically about that, that if you sow sparingly, you're going to reap sparingly. So if you don't give to church and missions and you're not, you're holding back on your tangible giving, that God's going to hold back on some of those blessings. Or Paul might be shifting gears again because this whole chapter is just full of him giving out little blurps of, of wisdom. How many of you have ever planted a garden? If you want to grow corn, what do you plant? You plant corn. If you want to grow broccoli, you plant broccoli. If you want to grow nothing, what do you plant? Nothing. And the fruit, God brings the fruit, but that's what he's saying. How much you sow, how much you do right now is the fruit that's going to be in your life displayed through the Holy Spirit, which Galatians 5 talks all about that. The fruits of the Spirit are this. But you have to sow into the Spirit to get the fruits of the Spirit. Um, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked for whatever one sows, he'll also reap. For the one who sows in his own flesh will reap corruption, but the one who sows in the Spirit will reap eternal life. Now, this sounds like a salvation verse and. Um, when I was listening to one of John Piper's messages on this, he talks about that, and he says that's exactly what's going on here. Others disagree. But this should concern you a little bit, that if you are a believer and you have been sowing into the Spirit and you have been walking in belief and faith in Jesus Christ and you don't display any fruit in your life, that should be concerning to you. If you are sowing into the flesh and you reap corruption and destruction and trials and hardships, that should be very concerning to you. It doesn't mean that the believer that slips up, because it talks about that in verse 1, and he says, brothers, if any of you, and he's saying people in the body or the family of Jesus is caught in a transgression. So it doesn't mean that we're not sinful. But I do think sometimes we're misled and deceived in ourselves. And we had some experience and we think, well, Jesus, I go to church. I'm a pretty good person. I do this, this, and this. I should be okay. And I think what Paul would say is, no, if you're not transformed by the power of Jesus Christ coming into you and starting to display the fruits of the Spirit through you, you probably have concern that you need to work out with God 
with fear and trembling is what he says in another passage. Anyway, and let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season, if we do not give up, so then we will have the opportunity, um, let us do good to everyone, especially those who are in the household of faith. As a believer, why do we grow weary of doing good? Think about that. Do not grow weary of doing good. Just honestly, have you ever got the text and it says, hey, mill train, sign up, and you're like, oh my gosh, I just gave 10 mills last week to different people and now they're asking me again. Later today, we're going to talk about a mission trip. Oh, I just, it's so inconvenient. I do not want to go. I don't want to do that. Doing good can be very inconvenient. Doing good can also be very fruitless when we think it's transactional in the sense that, well, if I do this and this, this is the fruit that will happen in this timetable. This is a verse that is hard for me personally. We have a um, feeding center in Alavalita that we've had for a long time. I've known some of these people for 15 years, 15 years. And they still come to the feeding center and they're still struggling with the same substance abuse issues. And they're still living on the streets. And it's like, okay, God, when do they change? How many meals do I have to give them? How many times do we preach the word? How many times do we show them the gospel? And there's just no fruit. And I think he would say, until I bring fruit. 70 times 70 is what he said when somebody said, how many times do I forgive a person? And he was being ridiculous. See, we think that, well, if I do this and this, this is the, 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 the return on my investment into the kingdom. If I do this and this, I'll have this. And that's not what he says at all. He says, you just do good and trust God to bring the fruit in his timing. And in his way, because you doing that might not even have the same um, motive of bringing that fruit. Maybe those people will never transform, and maybe the whole act of doing it had nothing to do with them at all, but it had everything to do with me and my attitude of wanting to serve sacrificially day in and day out for people that don't respond. Does that make sense? See, and that's what I think we do. We think, well, if I do this, I should see this fruit immediately. And then when we don't see it, we're like, well, I'm not helping anybody else. The last time I helped them, it didn't make any difference at all. I'm done with it. And we grow weary of doing good. Thank God Christ never grows weary of doing good on our behalf. I mean, what if he did that? What if he said, Spencer, I'm tired of it. I'm done forgiving you. I'm just tired, Spencer. I've grown weary of it. But he doesn't. So that's what Paul is saying. Do not grow weary in doing good. Um, and so, so then, as we have the opportunity to live, do good to everyone, and especially those who are in the household of faith. I love this. Do good to who? Everyone. So we're supposed to love the non-believer, so I'm supposed to love that crackhead that comes to breakfast every morning, drunk out of his mind. Yeah, 
you are. You're supposed to do good for them. And then he says, especially those in the body of Christ. Those are who we should care for first. So if there's a need in the church, I wasn't here, but Warner just moved. And I hope people went and helped him move. That's one of those things. That's doing good. That's carrying a burden. That's helping him out. It's something very tangible, and it seems silly. But that's a way that we show our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And you could go, well, I'm tired of helping people move. I've done it too much. But that would be wrong. So then, um, we're almost there. Verse 11 he says, see with what large letters I'm writing this to you with my own hand. So what does that mean? Well, there's three things. One, some people, <coughs> some people believe, well, first off, we know that Paul had like a secretary or a personal assistant, and he would dictate his letters, and the scribe would write them. And the scribe would um, read them back to Paul, and he would authenticate them at the bottom with this seal and a stamp saying, yes, this is my letter. But he didn't write them. So some scholars think that, well, one, maybe Paul had bad eyes, like me. Um, I can barely read today. I don't have my glasses. Um, so maybe Paul had bad eyes. Maybe, two, Paul just had horrible penmanship because he wasn't a scribe. And he was trying to write this because he wants this part of the letter to be personal. He wants this part of the letter to stand out. And that's what I think the third one is, and that's the one I ascribe to, is I think Paul is kind of like when you send somebody a text in all caps, you know, and you're maybe shouting through a text. I think that's what Paul is saying here. Look, pay attention. I'm going to write this last part of the letter. For five chapters, we've talked about what it means to trust in Christ alone. And I just gave you some practical advice on how we live and bear one another's burdens. But as I close this letter out, pay attention. So when Paul says, see with what large letters, letters I'm writing this with my own hand. Now, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. So what he's saying is he goes back to what he started the letter with. Those people who want you to be circumcised, their motives aren't even pure. He's like, they want you to be circumcised, one, so they won't be persecuted by the other Jewish people, so that they'll fit into the world, so that they'll be religious. And Paul's saying, no. And then he says, or if they're not doing it for that reason... It says, for even those who are circumcised, them themselves do not keep the law, but in the desire they have been circumcised, they may boast in their flesh. Let me, yeah, let me back up there. That's an important verse. He says, those who are circumcised, they don't even keep the whole law. So they get circumcised and they get, jump through these hoops, but they, they're doing the small things, but they're neglecting the big things. And that's what Paul was saying. If you want to live by the law, you're going to die by the law. That Christ alone, Christ freed us from the, the cumbersome law. That's why Jesus said, my burden is easy, my yoke is easy. It's light, because he does all the lifting. So he says, don't boast in your flesh. When you think you've arrived, you haven't. Boast only in Christ. But far be it from me to boast in anything 
except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I love that. It's almost like 220 that I preached on a while back. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. It's the same idea. He says, if you want to boast about how spiritual or how religious or how, how Christian you are, boast only in Jesus. And the world obviously has not been crucified physically, but what Paul is saying is the world is dead to me. I'm not going to compare myself to what the world says gives me worth or value any longer. I'm not going to compare, or I'm not going to chase after the things that the world says will make me a successful or happy person. I'm not going to filter my life through the world any longer. It's dead to me. I'm going to do it the way Jesus has instructed me and taught me and shows me. And that's so huge. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. It doesn't matter. Circumcised or uncircumcised. But a new creation. What makes you a new creation? See, that's what the, that's what the Pharisees would do. They would boast and they'd be like, oh, we had 20 circumcisions this week. Aren't we holy? Aren't we great? And we laugh at that. We're like, well, first off, that's really weird. But besides that, we're like, well, what, what is that? And you know what? We do it today. I work with a lot of different churches. And there's some churches that will say, oh, we had 40 salvations. We had 200 baptisms. We had, and they like to show like this outward work that gives them some spiritual worth that makes them seem holy. And Paul was like warning against that. Be careful with that. Because it doesn't matter if you're circumcised or uncircumcised when it comes to the law. He says the only thing that matters is a new creation. Think about that. What makes you a new creation? One thing, and that's the spirit of God indwelling inside of you. When you say, I can't do it, I can't, I need Jesus. And you say, Jesus, come, save me. And in that moment, the spirit of God comes in you and it starts to infect you. And it transforms you into a completely different person, that new creation. And it doesn't matter any longer of what you have done or what you're going to do from a religious perspective. But what matters is that Christ is inside of you now, that the God of the universe would love you so much that he would orchestrate everything, that he would send Jesus, who was perfect, to die for your sins and then rescue you and then just not, it's not just that, but he comes inside of us. Every believer has God right there. We talked about it early on about how the disciples walked around with Jesus. I think about that sometimes. I'm like, man, that would have been so cool. I wish I could do that. Just to walk with him and hear him and watch the miracles and all of that. And then I think, you know what? We have it so much better because we're never alone. 
when Jesus wasn't around, the disciples were out in the storm rowing their brains out trying to go get through. Jesus wasn't around and they were terrified. Guess what? You are never alone in the storm. When you have the spirit of God in you, you are never alone. You are always loved. And when you let that spirit infect you and start to take over and you become a new creation, that's where the fruits of the spirit start to be displayed. And it's not out of this religiosity of trying to impress God. I mean, think about that. I was talking to a pastor that came down to 6-8 a couple weeks ago, and we were talking about evangelism explosion. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but I, he was a trainer, and I was a trainer, and it's this old um, system of sharing the gospel. And the diagnostic question is, one of the questions is, that if God said, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? I'll tell you what the world says, because I've asked that question of a lot of people. Well, I'm a pretty good person. I tried really hard. Sometimes they're like, well, I, I'm not great, but I'm better than that person. Like God grades on, grades on a curve, and he's like, the top 50% go, and the bottom 50% it sucks for you. I mean, no, it's, it's, they, they think the immediate response is me. What have I done? What do I do? What have I done? What have I done? There's only one right answer, and that's the answer we get our security and our surety and our boasting is because of Jesus. I don't know why, but you loved me. I don't know why, but you sent Jesus to die for me. And his work alone is the only hope I have for salvation. And you promised that to me. And if you say that, that honors God. That's boasting in him. Jesus does all the work. But if it's anything about, well, I did this, I did this, I did this, it's going to fall short. I mean, who's going to get before the throne of God and be like, all right, I'm here. You did a really good job picking me. I'll tell you what, because I'm pretty awesome. I mean, think about that. The, the God who spoke the universe into being, you're going to arrive and he's going to somehow be impressed with you. No, he's impressed with Christ in you. And that's what it's all about. And that's what Paul is trying to get to here. And then in closing, it says, And for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon you and upon the Israel of God. The nation of Israel is what he's talking about there. For all of you who walk in this new creation, that's the rule. You're a new creation in Christ. The world should be dead to you. Jesus said that. You can't love the world and me. You can't serve two masters. You can't have it both ways, but we love to try. And he says, no, the world has died to you and to me, or at least it should. And we no longer measure ourselves through the filter of the world. Rather, we measure ourselves through the filter of his word in Christ. And that's what gives us value, and that's what makes us a new creation. And he says, mercy and peace upon you. I don't know about you, but lately, with everything that's been going on in the world, I need a lot of mercy, and I need a lot of peace. And that's the promise he gives you. Spencer, if you will be a new creation, and you will be in tune with my spirit, that's part of the fruit that you will have, is God's mercy and his peace.
And then he says, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear my body the marks of Jesus. And I love this. Paul's kind of being smart here, or snippy. He's like, yeah, I've been circumcised, but those marks don't matter at all. The marks I, that, that I bear are the whippings and the floggings and the snake bite and the, the chain to the prison wall. So don't come at me with your, you've got to be circumcised or uncircumcised. Don't come at me with all this little religiosity. Persecution and sacrifice for Jesus Christ, he's like, that's what makes it real. That's what made it real for him. He says, that's the marks I bear. So don't burden me anymore with all of this legalism or religiosity. If you would just love each other and love God sacrificially, you will bear the mark of Christ. And then it says, to grace our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, with your spirit, brothers. Amen. And that's what we hope for, is that the grace of Jesus Christ would be with our spirits in us and change us and transform us. And that's it. That's Galatians 6. Let's pray.